It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Government versus the Robots. I'm Jonathan Tanner and this is the fortnightly podcast which takes a look at how technology will affect politics in the future. In this episode, we're taking a look at virtual reality. How long will it be until you watch the news in the streets where it's happening rather than in the comfort of your own living room? When will Facebook become a truly interactive experience? And politicians have worked out how you can, if ever, regulate a virtual environment. I'm joined this week by Marisol Grandin. Marisol is chief executive of a communications agency called Unfold Stories and the founder of Women in VR. She's got lots to say about the potential applications of virtual reality in politics, technology and the media. Marisol, thanks for being here. Do you want to introduce yourself to everybody? Hi, I'm Marisol. I run a company called Unfold Stories. We make immersive content and digital content for international development and the education sectors. Cool. Uh, Marisol, tell me, were you a kind of like, are you a big computer gamer when you were a kid? Were you always interested in all things graphics? No, not really. No, I've always been interested in stories and documentaries and current affairs. So absolutely not, although I did have an Atari and we did play play games as a kid. Um, but I don't consider myself a gamer at all, really. Um, in my household, I have a, a gamer husband and a gamer son and a gamer daughter. So I kind of exist on the fringes of it, really. Are you a film buff? I love films, yeah. I love uh, I love the movies. Um, I've always been interested in in uh, stories, whether they're real or, or fiction. Okay, and so when did you first become interested in virtual reality? The first time really was when um, a filmmaker called Gabo Aurora came into uh, the Department for International Development where I was working with his film Clouds Over Sidra, which is a 360 video shot in Jordan. Um, at Zatri camp um, and he brought his film it's seven minutes long and he was showing it to members of the Syria team and the communications division and uh, it was a watershed moment for me because I really engaged with that with that experience it told the story of a young woman young girl called Sidra who was 12 at the time of filming and her daily experience in the camps there um, and it was so immersive and so powerful. I knew e- immediately that this was what I'd been trying to do all my life was um, cultural exchange and stories bringing the world uh, closer together. So I wanted to make films like that as soon as I saw it, really. And what happened next? So we started looking into um, the capabilities 
of uh, 360 video and, and virtual reality. Um, we started looking into the cameras and, and how to capture that sort of story. I really love um, documentary, as I say, so it was interesting to, to me that with a camera, a 360 camera, you could actually put the audience inside the experience so that they could, uh, you know, enjoy it for themselves um, rather than presenting them with a rectangular vision of that location. And so we're talking about film at the moment, but the applications of virtual reality are, are many sure. uh, and emerging and developing all of the time. So what are some of the kind of crazier things that it's now possible to do with virtual reality? Where are the most exciting developments in the virtual reality space? Well, for the first few years um, in this latest incarnation of virtual reality, there have been you know, a number of headsets um, you know, ranging in quality, uh, of experience, so you have the Vives and the Oculus Rifts at the at the sort of top of the tree, um, providing very realistic um, experiences for for viewers, and then all the way through to Samsung Gear and the the Google Daydream, which is you know something in between, uh, down to the very basic Google Cardboard, which is very accessible and all you need is a is a smartphone to view that type of content, and it's very cheap. Um, I'd say on the bleeding edge of things at the moment, you have uh, companies like Hype VR, which are producing um, 3D volumetric um, photography. And this is very exciting for the industry because it, it provides um, footage, 360 video, which you can physically walk around um, and look around. So rather than being a static person in that, in that um, uh, environment, you can actually move around and see see things as if you were there virtually. So that is a very exciting development in the sector, but it's it's not very easy to access and it's quite expensive at the moment to produce. I was doing my obligatory Googling in advance sure. of our conversation to kind of find out some of the more interesting things that managed to get to the top of the Google algorithm. Uh, and one of them was that somebody had built a kind of virtual operating room as a way of teaching potential future surgeons how to go about different operations. Are there lots of examples of ways in which people are trying to use virtual reality as a kind of training device? Absolutely. Training is a, a huge area, which is why I'm so interested in the, you know, the applications in education in general um, for children, but also for adults. Um, and there's, as you say, an, a huge assortment of applications where people are training um, um, for, for surgery, Things where it's difficult to um, difficult to access for a large number of people. So, um, for example, the Ebola crisis, you had uh, people being trained on how to how to use the PPE suits through virtual reality uh, in in toxic environments like where the Ebola crisis was happening in Sierra Leone. So, you have um, uh, the medical sector really exploring this at the moment um, with some very interesting use cases. Presumably the military as well and other industries? Or? Of course, the military, you know, virtual simulations of, yeah, flight simulators, that sort of thing's been going on for a while. Um, and so, yeah, there are a lot of examples of, of the military using virtual reality to, to train their, to train their, um, their people. And, um, of course, I think there's a lot of investment in that area as well. Does it work? So, I mean, because training is one of those things where, I mean, I've sat in a lot of training and I haven't felt very trained as a consequence. So, you know, do we know anything about whether it's a nice new way to potentially deliver skills? But I know that I struggle in kind of mass prescription learning environments and much more need engagement. So do we know that 
VR, albeit it's a different way of delivering training, do we know it's potentially a better way of delivering training? Well, the the jury's out and there are, you know, companies like Pearson, for example, providing training for nurses um, so that they can spot symptoms of um, of people who are presenting symptoms. Um, and, you know, this is providing another mechanism for them to see what it's like when someone's actually in front of them, albeit they are actors who are presenting these these symptoms. It gives them a different way to, to um, assessing things other than just reading a textbook. So it's it's not going to replace textbooks but it's going to be another tool for for people who are training and they need visuals in order to do that there's lots and lots of talk we haven't kind of discussed it thoroughly on this podcast yet but everybody listening knows that tech could lead to job losses in the future Um, whether it will or not is a is a different conversation but presumably vr is another example of ways in which you could cut out roles that humans have previously played you know do you need teachers or people to deliver training courses where you've got virtual reality to do it instead sure well i think um when you take a take a look at um applications like google expeditions which is something i've been involved with um making content for expeditions is a classroom based um virtual reality uh app um made by google And the idea of expeditions is to um, bring tours from around the world, like a virtual field trip, into the classroom. Um, And it provides uh, teachers with the visuals and a script and content to plan a lesson around. But you still need that human to run the lesson. And um, for something that's very high tech, it actually uh, relies on a lot of human engagement. And you still need the teacher and you still need the students. So... It's enhancing um, uh, the role of education, uh, of of technology in the classroom, but I don't think it's taking away any jobs. Um, Of course, virtual reality has so many potential applications. I'm sure there are sectors where where it will have an impact on, um, you know, on people's on people's jobs. But by and large, I see job opportunities rather than it taking away jobs at the moment. And um, when you listen to what the big tech companies are saying about virtual reality, some cynics say it's kind of they're desperately trying to find a way to use this byproduct of technological development and find a use for it beyond gaming and pornography and other things that entertain people. The the question I think that's most relevant for politics, because that's what we try and talk about, is where does technology become relevant for politics, is around this idea of empathy and whether we can use virtual reality to grow... Um, or engender empathy in others for the plight of other human beings. Is that something that you think is realistic? Absolutely. I'm very interested in um, equality in politics, and I think that um, virtual reality really provides a mechanism for all political systems to um, bring people into, into their environment. So, you know, it's difficult for your average person to spend time perhaps in in the House of Commons but you know there's no reason why they wouldn't be able to with with virtual reality on a more regular basis all around the country that's just one way you could use use VR to increase public engagement I'm not sure if they're doing that but it's it's a a good idea Um, it allows people to be in places they couldn't normally be so that can only be a good thing from a from a political perspective to increase debate and to increase dialogue on key issues. Um, and it's something I'd like to see more of happening. Is it 
can you do virtual reality in real time? Because my, I suspect it's one thing being able to put a pair of VR goggles on a secondary school student and walk them around an empty House of Commons chamber. It's another thing feeling like you're sat on the benches during Prime Minister's question time. Sure. Well, there are companies which do live VR broadcast. Um, I'm thinking specifically of Next VR, um, who who just do that. Um, and of course, you have um, they have they they work in places like you know, music concerts and conferences and things like that. So that's you know sporting events. You can go and you know be uh, courtside at a basketball game or a football game, and, the, and most of their stuff is done in the United States at the moment. Um, but the technology exists. It's in- entirely possible to have a Samsung Gear and go and watch an event like that in real time, which are broadcast live. But then you also have, um, on a much um, more personal level, the ability now with a smartphone and the right camera attachment to broadcast live yourself in 360. And that, I think, has endless um, potential for, for, for the news world in terms of gathering material from um, you know the scenes of, of, of news events um, but also for individuals to broadcast in 360 um, events that are happening around them. So for citizen journalism, it's a, it's a, it's a huge development um, to be able to do that. It's incredibly powerful just off a 3G or 4G network. You can broadcast live in 360, which I think is phenomenal, really. And just while we're on the news, you know, you hear a lot of people say, and I, I have a big degree of sympathy with this, that the news these days is pretty numbing. Um, there's bad news everywhere and bad news makes news obviously but uh, ha- two questions really one is how far how far are we from a virtual reality news bulletin and two is do you think that the chances of a VR news bulletin would could potentially trigger a different emotional response in people um, from an audience that is a bit fatigued by watching the news on the telly absolutely I think they are fatigued by what they're seeing I don't think it's that far off to answer your first question, I don't think um, you know very progressive news uh, rooms all over the world are experimenting with 360 broadcast and 360 um, storytelling. Um, there are huge ethical questions about how they do that and how they um, deal with the the people who are no longer in a frame but in a 360 sphere. Mm. So there are lots of questions around consent um, and uh, editorial guidelines which just don't exist because we don't really have the grammar or the words or the language to to define this new medium in news but there are a lot of talented people working on it and thinking of obviously New York Times and The Guardian in the UK um, who are experimenting a lot with individual pieces but then um, yeah lots of European newspapers um, it's interesting to see that um, broadcasters and newspapers equally uh, exploring what they can do with it and what it what it means for um, the future of news. I guess the two are kind of increasingly merged anyway, broadcasters and newspapers. But I think one thing that they have in common and actually that we have in common is uh, an interest in storytelling. And the it strikes me that you know, we've talked about whether you could place the average citizen in the House of Commons or on the floor of the US Senate. Um, but actually, perhaps it's it's potentially more powerful to place the average politician in the lives of a less than average citizen. Not that there should be such a thing as a less than average citizen. But 
presumably there are opportunities for organizations to really trade on and bring alive the plight of some of the people that they're trying to help um is that one of the more obvious ways that you would expect vr to kind of engage with politics yes i think there are many opportunities to do that um ngos and charities are doing it all the time now with um telling virtual reality stories in 360 video um not exclusively uh 360 video but lots of 360 video out there which tells the stories of people um in challenging parts of the world and they're bringing that story to uh for fundraising and for awareness raising in in their countries um and that is having an impact so you have uh the film i mentioned at the beginning clouds over sidra which was shown at davos to policymakers. you have films um such as the one i've just completed for save the children uh shown to donors and policymakers in milan um you have lots of examples where these stories of individual um individuals around the world are being taken to these more um cloistered forums and they're showing what conditions are like or an individual story which is you know a, a much more immersive and powerful way to tell the story hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I very recently, with a colleague of yours, was watching a VR film that uh, you made for Save the Children, which is filmed in Somaliland, but it's it's there to show the kind of situation in Somalia next door. And there's a moment in that film where a small child is holding out their hand. And now, obviously, that's a very emotional image, and me and you could go down a, a corridor about whether that's the right kind of image for development and all those kind of conversations. Right. But the the fact remains that I, I know I've never felt quite like that when I've watched something before that I could reach out and touch it you know I have memories of sitting on uh, simulators at theme parks and that sort of stuff as the kind of closest thing to being able to be properly immersed um, if this is going to become more and more common presumably we're heading towards a world where fake news looks quite benign compared to fake reality is that fair? 
Fake news versus fake reality. Hmm. This is one reason why I think it's super important for politicians to understand the sector and to keep across it because for that very reason that, you know, if we don't understand it, there will be people trying to take advantage of of that lack of understanding and that lack of knowledge and that lack of experience to create fake news and to create um, false realities for their own means. And, um, you know, no doubt there are people all over the world actually trying to do that at the moment. It's really key for people to understand what's happening now so that they can anticipate what what bad things might be happening in the future. What's the worst uh, scenario you could imagine? Well, I can imagine a, a time where people are being fed live, in inverted commas, live 360 video from a scene which hasn't happened. So, you know, a terror attack in a location which is incredibly realistic, but just hasn't happened. That's why the news organisations have an incredibly important role to play in guiding the public through this new medium because it's their editorial guidelines and their protocols which will matter in this new era of immersive technology I think. I wonder if you have a sense of anything that could be done to kind of ensure that it doesn't become something that's actually a prospect that we're all dealing with because we're struggling with fake Facebook stories let alone fake reality. I think the ship sailed on all of that it's you know reality is is already messed up um, and you have the um you know, the head of Google VR, Clay Bavis, talking about, you know, real reality. This is a term that they're using now, is real reality, as though reality can't be, could be something else. Um, you know, virtual reality is the immersive, you know, fully immersed pictures and sounds. But then you also have augmented reality, which is, you know, objects overlaid onto your your field of vision and then mixed reality. And so... There are so many ways that um, synthetic or, you know, invented things can be inserted into your into your world now through technology. Um, that the whole idea of 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 reality is now over. We we have this kind of multiple world of yeah, multiple levels of of reality depending on what technology you're using. And I I think it's the ship has sailed. That's why I I think it's important for you know politicians to be on top of this and to understand it um, we should be having an APPG on on these issues I know there is one on AI for example and so I worked in parliament for three years a good while ago now and um, I'll, I'll save my views on APPGs for another time but is there anything that you know if you if you if you were put in a position of absolute power over this in a regulatory sense is there anything you think that is is fairly obvious or a bit of a no-brainer that should be done quite quickly Yes, I think there's an interesting debate going on about, you know, what is what is a violation or what is what is a good code of conduct in a virtual environment. And um, there is there's a lot to be said on people harassing other people in in virtual reality games, for example, Um, because if they're network network games, then you are exposed to other other players and they might not have a a real name. They have an avatar and a and a fake name. And so the debate that's happening at the moment is what is the code of conduct inside these environments and, um, you know, what behaviour is legitimate and what shouldn't be allowed. I think that some people think they can get away with, you know, really harassing other people for a variety of reasons, you know, so that's an area where 
there isn't currently any any regulation. So I really welcome the fact that there are um, bodies now like Immerse UK, which has been set up to um, to um, you know foster the industry in the UK, and they see that there's um, real potential for driving jobs um, and creativity, and that the UK is really well known for its incredible uh, creativity in and technology. But you know, I'd like to see that body also tackling some of the ethical questions as a, a body of the state. I'm going to deliberately avoid diving into any of the ethical questions because I, I think there's a, probably a separate series of it's podcasts perfect. to be done on the on yeah. on the ethics, not just on VR, but on drones, on even driverless cars. You know, they're everywhere. There's kind of deep and existential and ethical questions that need to be asked. I I haven't seen yet. I don't think in the application of any technology a kind of new human fault so by that i mean that often where new spaces open up whether it's social media or whether it's virtual reality it tends to be that they um, give us another way of showcasing the best and the worst of human nature um, and sometimes they might cast more light on a particular element but they don't tend to invent new ways for humans to actually be terrible they tend to be driven by um kind of original human humanity if you like real humanity um I want to ask a bit about avatars and kind of what it will be to exist in a VR world. So, I mean, I think at the moment, if you use Facebook as the touch point, some people have Facebook video profiles, and that's about as far as it goes. How will, how, when, when VR is kind of more commonplace, and if it enters the social media world and the way that we all interact, how are we going to, how are we going to interact within it? It's a very interest, interesting question because Facebook has, um, is, is in the process of developing Facebook Spaces. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but Facebook Spaces is uh, is exactly that. So it's the virtual reality environment for its network, but it's in a, it's in a beta phase. It's very small um, and they have selected people around the world. They didn't invite me, so I, I'm not in it, but I know people who are, who are involved in Facebook Spaces, but their vision, their big vision, and I suppose this is why they have um, you know, invested so much in VR and bought Oculus for, I think, $2 billion, you know, a few years ago, is that they really see that this is the direction of travel for for socialising and um, is the next uh, chapter for Facebook and for social networks. So it's very friendly. If you can imagine the avatar, um, it's, it's kind of like a cartoonized version of you. So I suppose you, I don't know if you've ever played on a, on a, on a Wii game and you can, you can create your own me and you give yourself, um, you know, a yellow jumper and a, a hairstyle that matches yours and big eyes or whatever you want to do or glasses. So you create a, a cartoonized version of you and then you go into Facebook spaces, I suppose, using a headset um, and you can um, interact with other people in your network you can show them your pictures in a sort of virtual lounge uh, and do all the things that you can do on Facebook, but through um, through a different interface. So we'll begin to see that, you know, the era that we're in at the moment with social networks, those all of those interfaces are going to look very old fashioned and um, like a sort of old fashioned telephone with a, a pickup receiver and a, and a separate thing to speak into eventually because they are web pages essentially and we're spending all our time looking at web pages whereas the technology will start to uh, be less visible and you'll you'll be able to interact with your friends and family through um, more um, invisible methods so i made my own bitmoji 
yesterday uh, in one of our most productive afternoons ever at work me and my team made a bitmoji each uh, and we all exchanged them and we'll continue to use them hopefully as long as we continue to work together um but it, the idea of having a kind of virtual you and thinking about facebook uh in particular the, the way they make their money is through data and i'm i've said before in an episode on big data reasonably relaxed about that but if that data becomes about which direction do I look in at a particular moment on my headset or how do I move my head when I'm particularly nervous or, you know, is there a, is there a risk or is, it, you know, is the ship sailed on this as well that actually our physicality is going to become something that's capable of providing data? Yes, I think it will do. And um, you have a lot of companies looking at, you know, how you react you know, moment by moment, and that's already going on. So, virtual realities. If you're if you're talking about um, avatars and your sort of virtual self inside these inside these places, um, yeah. If you're in a virtual environment, you are producing data, I suppose. So, it does provide a wealth more to people who want that information to sell you things, and that goes all the way down to you know your health. Um, and biodata as well as your physical appearance, absolutely. So you've talked to us about your role as CEO of Unfold Stories, yeah. but you, I looked at your Twitter biography, as any good interviewer should, yeah. uh, and that's not the only thing you do. You also work with women in VR, is that right? Yeah, I started an account uh, a few years ago. Um, it was after the, the time when I when I first saw Clouds Over Sidra and I started to explore um, the sector I was looking for examples of amazing filmmakers like like Gabo and I wanted to know who else was making stuff so that I could start to learn and it really struck me that um, at the time there were a lot of men involved in the industry and it, I did find other women working in the industry uh, as directors um, quite quickly but there were fewer of them and um, I wanted to provide a platform to shine a light on what what they were doing because it's a completely new industry and uh, it quickly led me to meet lots of other people who had the same thought of, okay, this is the start of an industry. So when we were born in the 70s, you know, the film industry had been going for, you know, decades. Um, you know, this was, this was the ship had sailed for that industry on, on gender parity within the industry because it's, it, you know, it, there isn't a lot of parity and women are still trying to get to a place of equality in lots and lots of sectors and the film the film sector is a, a clear one where that's happening vr there's a chance to have um, a better blend of representation from the beginning and uh, i thought that this would be a good way to to help shine a light on the work so that other women who are in other sectors who might be interested in getting involved in it could see what work was being done and, and that might inspire them to go out and and learn for themselves so yeah that's how uh, VR Women started um, but then I discovered after starting that account that there are so many people also working on this and who have taken it to incredible um, and inspiring lengths so you have an organisation in the United States called SHIFT um, uh, which is a a collection of really amazing people who are looking for um you know an inclusive looking for the sector at large to be more inclusive and to bring a pipeline of you know 
talent through from all walks of life so that it's not just dominated by one one demographic and so i mean you know looking at it from a from an outside perspective obviously the the origins of the vr industry in particular pornography gaming they kind of like you know it's stereotypical but they feel like pretty blokey environments and you know we're recording this at a time when uh, harvey weinstein's story is big news and we know how you know we're seeing how bad things have been within the film industry as well obviously we've talked a bit earlier on this episode about things politicians could do to regulate vr and make sure that this is a safe space if people are listening to this and they're interested in tech you know what what would you want them to have in mind in terms of trying to ensure that there is that inclusive environment i'd like them to have in mind um that there are loads of interested people out there who are looking for training there are people looking for um, um, opportunities there are people who who want to try things out and have the right skill sets um, and that you know for example there are tons of women who want to to code and they want to develop and they are doing it and they are doing that in other sectors and, and they could be brought brought into this sector quite easily if they were exposed to it one of the things that uh a previous guest said just after we'd finished recording the episode, so I'll, I'll say it for him now, is that he was citing some uh, research from a university in California that said that women were the most capable campaigners and the most likely people to drive social change. So it seems a, um, a good follow-up question to that point to kind of finish with my what's always my last question on this podcast, which is to say that you know, you've worked with some inspirational people doing some inspirational things, responding to you know, massive humanitarian and natural disasters trying to drive through changes in Whitehall that can make a big difference in the lives of literally millions of people what in your experience have the people who have successfully achieved change what characteristics have they demonstrated what what have you learned about what it is to deliver positive change in the world they have tenacity they're brave they they don't take no for an answer you know I think of um People like Nimo Ali, Daughters of Eve, who works on um, ending FGM. You know, she's she just goes out there and she she talks to politicians, she talks to activists. She's she's just storming ahead, and she's made a huge, huge difference um, on that particular issue. I, I think that you know these people are doing amazing things, and uh, you just have to be really tenacious and actually reach politicians as well because they they want to be reached. They want to hear about all these things that are going on. Great. Marisol, thank you very much for coming to this particular patch of concrete up here in North London. It's been a pleasure to have you here. It's my pleasure. Thanks very much. So that was a dose of real reality, I guess. That's it for this week. Thanks for all of you who've been in touch with feedback on previous episodes. Please do keep it coming. As always, you can listen, like, subscribe and share Government vs. the Robots on Twitter at G-O-V-T underscore V-S Robots, Facebook at Government vs. the Robots and you can find me at Tanner JC. Thanks so much to Cecilia Armstrong for her help producing and editing this podcast and we'll see you in a fortnight. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.